This is a podcast for Functional Ecology, a British Ecological Society publication. Today I'm very delighted to share a first of its kind special BES podcast episode which is part of our UK Black History Month blog series initiative. This episode is a collaborative project between the Root of Science podcast and British Ecological Society journals podcasts. It is with great pleasure that I can reveal that today's episode is a panel discussion with three black ecologists. However, before I formally introduce and welcome our esteemed guests, I want to give a brief introduction to the platform that the BS is collaborating with today. The Root of Science podcast is hosted by Anne Kieser, who is doing wonderful work showcasing the work of Black researchers in STEM. I want to thank Anne for her contributions both to this episode and in her work showcasing Black researchers around the world. Her podcast can be found at rootofthesciencepodcast.buzzsprout.com and their Twitter handle is at rootofsci.pod. Please do check out her podcast and support it in any way that you can. So as anyone who has followed this BES series will know, the purpose of uh, our Black History Month initiative is to provide a platform for Black ecologists and to showcase the fantastic work and research that they are doing. Therefore, I'm honoured to welcome our guests for the panel today. We have Daniel Pauli, Nasipi Batani and Imtokozusi Moyo. Daniel Pauli is a University Killam Professor, which I, if I've been informed correctly, is the highest honour that the University of British Columbia can confer on a member of faculty at the Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries and Department of Zoology. He has authored or co-authored over a thousand scientific articles, book chapters and shorter contributions and authored or co-edited around 30 books and reports. Nasipi is an early career PhD researcher from the Centre for Functional Biodiversity at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. Nasifi's current research interests are on the misspelt indigenous forests of the KwaZulu-Natal Midlands in South Africa. And lastly, Umto Kozisi Moyo is an early career researcher at the University of Witwatersrand, South Africa. His research focus is currently on several aspects of seasonality, such as functional traits and adaptations associated with rainfall seasonality in Africa, ecological and climatological approaches to defining rainfall seasonality, and more. So with further ado, I'm going to hand over to Anne Kisa, who will be chairing this podcast today. Thank you so much, Frank. It is absolutely an honor to host this panel with the amazing guests that we have today. I'm so excited for the conversation, which I believe is very important. Now, um, you know, to get things started, we have three amazing people on the panel who are doing great work in the area of science. But I think it's very important for us to set the tone and to understand before you all got to where you are currently now. Um, I'd love to know, was science actually something that you wanted to do from the get-go? I'm going to start with you, Daniel, because you're further ahead in your field, and then we'll go to Nasipi, and then Mto. Well, Um, I was born in Paris in 46, that's uh, millions of years ago, and um, my father is, uh, was African-American, a soldier, 
passing soldier, my mother, a French woman. Uh, I grew up in, in Switzerland, in a French-speaking part of Switzerland, and uh, it was kind of difficult. And um, at 17, I moved to Germany, and I acquired what you call A-levels, uh, uh, the degree that uh, enables you to go to university in night courses uh, from five to nine uh, every every five times a week in four years. Mm. Uh, I went, went to university at age 20, 23 then in Germany again. And by that time, I had decided that I was going to live in a, in a, in a country of the global south. Um, not because I was personally discriminated, because I was not really, but because I, I was always questioned as to my identity, where do I belong? Mm. And clearly, uh, growing up in Europe, uh, speaking French, German, and later Spanish, I, I belong in Europe, but uh, because I, I looked a little bit brown, I was supposed to then be a foreigner uh, mm. everywhere I was. So I might as well, I, I thought uh, I might as well emigrate to a country of the South. And I had done uh, my thesis, the fieldwork for my thesis in Ghana, um, and uh, found that I, though I'm not Ghanaian, I could uh, live among Ghanaians and be happy. So mm. they, I studied science not because I'm particularly, I was particularly sciencey oriented, but because I thought uh, I would learn something like uh, like uh, agronomy at first that uh, would be useful in a developing country. And um, I started uh, agronomy, but it changed within a semester because the place was full of Nazi. Not, uh, nasty, not nasty people that we call Nazi, real Nazi, because it was in, uh, in 69 and, and they were still around in, in Germany. Uh, I studied then uh, fishery science and um, I was, uh, after my master, I was working two years in Indonesia, came back to do a PhD. And uh, then I was working in the Philippines uh, around 20 years and could realize my dream of working in the intertropical belt. Uh, I, I have been teaching uh, and researching the fisheries of, uh, of the entire world uh, and teaching in Africa, in, in, in South America, in, in Oceania, in, uh, and I, I, I was kind of international before I came to UBC and continue to work on fisheries globally. So I'm, in my field, I'm, I'm rather, uh, I'm a big shark in a small pond uh, because uh, fisheries is, is kind of a small thing, but uh, I'm a big shark therein. So uh, I will stop at this point. Thank you so much for for that um, journey. It's it's pretty long and winding, and we can't wait to hear more about what you do. Over to you, NCP. What is your story? What made you want to become a scientist? So for me, I always knew I wanted to do something within the sciences, but I didn't know exactly what, because I've always been like good in maths, and I knew I wanted to do something with maths. So when I got to high school in grade eight, I went to like a technical high school. So they offered like civil technology. So the influence then was like around engineering. 
So when I had to like choose my majors in grade 10, uh, I initially wanted to like do engineering and I was fortunate to be part of a, a program that is offered by Engine, which is an oil refinery uh, company where they offer like extra math and science and the goal behind it is to just influence um, peers to get into STEM with the more specific, uh, with more specifically engineering. So yeah, and then when I got when I got into grade twelve, I joined an environmental club, um, and we went on an excursion for like the cleaning the oceans, and then that's when like one of the ladies who was um, giving a talk there was an environmental uh, scientist, so that's when I was introduced to environmental science, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. And then I went on to do environmental science in my undergrad. And I was introduced into ecology uh, because the degree that I was doing was a bio, was a double major between ecology and environmental science. So in my second year, I was then introduced to ecology. I then decided that after I completed my BSc undergrad, I'll then pursue ecology. Fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Nasipi. Um, Mtor, what is your genesis? How did you end up in science? Um, well, I always say that I ended up here by accident, really. Uh, because, okay, I did want to do science, but I just wasn't sure which form of science I would actually do. So when I was younger, I was really good at maths and science. Uh, and then uh, when I got to varsity actually I was not sure what exactly I wanted to do so I just enrolled for a bachelor of science like a general degree where you can basically build it and just have uh, any subject that you want so then I took chemistry I took physics I had maths and uh, biology so kind of tried to cover all my bases there really but uh, the two which really interested me mostly were chemistry and I can say biology because that's the one I actually got very good marks in. So it was only logical to continue down that field. And then initially I wanted to do chemistry and then I was in, in, introduced in the field of environmental chemistry. And I just thought that they would both go to, together. But then chemistry didn't love me back. I actually failed my second year. And I just, just focused mostly on the environmental science part. But like I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, until I actually got to my honors year, where I met my supervisor, Professor Bob Scholes, who I didn't know at the time. So I'd read his papers before, but like I didn't know who he was. Uh, and then he actually got me interested in ecology because he was this big shot scientist. I, I got to actually encounter that, like I got to learn about that eventually, but at the time I didn't know. And he's the one who taught me basically everything I know and actually increased the interest in uh, this particular field because like I said I was just trying to find my place in the world and I just felt at home after working with it. Mm. You know it seems like the common theme or the common thread um, with everyone here is that you kind of got into the science field ex accidentally um, and even more specifically in this field of ecology. Um, so with that being said it's, it's quite interesting to now know where have you actually all ended up. So could you just tell us more about your specific research um, interests? I know, Daniel, you started telling us off briefly that you are working um, in the fisheries department, so uh, which is more marine um, 
marine sciences. So can you tell us more about what you're currently working on and um, your areas of interest, which I'm sure have evolved also over time? Um, <clears throat> fisheries are mainly marine, uh, but they're also conducted in, in uh, freshwater, right? And uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, the, the fisheries have to be managed uh, because you want to know how much you should catch so that uh, you will have a catch next year and okay. uh, you it's like trees but you cannot see them <laughs> uh, if you want to count them and so you have to uh, have mathematical models that um, that uh, work on that apply to fish now most mathematical models they were developed in europe and in north america for fish that you can determine the age of. Uh, in the tropics, the fish don't have necessarily rings that allow you to determine the age. And so uh, the theory has to be modified. And um, that's what I began in the, in the 80s to do, to modify the theory uh, so that the theory of fishing, so that it could be used in the tropics. And um, I have... Uh, <clears throat> published lots of stuff about that. And um, so that's the first part of my work. And then um, I grew knowledgeable about what the economics and the, the drivers of fishing, uh, uh, subsidies and huge demand in some countries and stuff, foreign fishing. And I became quite uh, vehement about, about uh, the things that ought to be fixed. And um, my biography, which was recently published, um, uh, has me as a, a, a whistleblower. Um, I'm supposed to be the ocean whistleblower. But my personal interest uh, in, the, 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 in the, the late phase of my life and work is um, going back to what I did at the beginning for my dissertation, uh, which is what fish um, um, the, the difficulty that fish have to extract oxygen out of water and um, uh, the, the fact that, uh, that they are very sensitive to lack of oxygen and uh, deoxygenation and temperature increase. This was ignored very much at the beginning, uh, 40 years ago, but now with global warming, this is coming. This is very, very uh, pertinent. And uh, this work that I did is becoming, getting lots of attention. And, and I'm working now mainly on that. Uh, last, last point I want to make is that I, considered, I consider science uh, uh, as simplifying things. Uh, I, I try to find generalities that simplify things. Science to me is not a, a collection of phenomena, but it is a, a, a set of explanation. explanation. And you have to produce explanation rather than describe phenomena. Uh, and it was it function science function as on the basis of uh, evidence. And evidence doesn't matter who brings the evidence forward. It doesn't matter really what race or what gender the argument comes from. And that is the reason why science allows us when we let when we are allowed in to, to blossom and to be, as opposed to certain fields where, where uh, 
what you are or what you are supposed to be determines forever what you what you can do and uh, uh, that is, science is in that sense very liberating mm, that is absolutely correct and for me i personally love what you said that science is meant to be simplified and it's a set of evidence so um we we spoke about you being the ocean whistleblower and we are focusing down under so nasipi tell us about your research we are now above the ocean um uh, talk us through about what exactly you do um for your phd studies and maybe for the future so um currently for my phd I am focusing on the mist belt forest uh, in the Midlands of South Africa. I'm interested specifically on bird communities. So this forest in the past, they've been heavily logged, changing the structure and composition of forests. So as you know that birds are important ecologically as they pollinate our plants and um, they contribute largely to seed dispersal of plants. So I'm looking at how are they responding to land use change. And with that, I'm also focusing on the endangered Cape parrot. Um, I'm looking at which patches, forest patches, um, is the bird occupying and what makes those patches uh, special. And that is important because we have less than 2,000 individuals currently in the wild. So by knowing um, like which, what forest structural and compositional uh, characteristics are maintaining these birds, uh, we can conserve the remaining population. Thank you so much, Nasipi. Um, very interesting research, and we wish you all of the best with the rest of your PhD. Um, Tor, um, give us an overview. What are you currently working on in your field? Um, so as I was saying in the introduction, I work on several aspects of seasonality. I can say it started off as a very small project that just grew and grew, but uh, just a few aspects which I'm just going to highlight. Uh, the main thing is mainly focusing on the functional traits and the adaptations associated with rainfall seasonality in Africa. So basically, what traits do plants and animals have to have in order to survive in a seasonal environment? So we know that every single year, there's a time when there's a lot of rain, there's a time when there's a dry season. So during the dry season, what do those organisms, um, well, what strategies do they use to be able to deal with that, the length of that dry season? So for example, I use trees. Some trees drop their leaves. Some manage to keep their leaves throughout that a whole period. Or we get animals that also migrate to other parts where there's uh, food during the dry season. So those are the kinds of traits that I'm looking at. Uh, so we have done uh, a review and also try to classify all of those traits into different categories. And then the other thing which we're also looking at is how to actually define what rainfall seasonality is. Because if you look at all the papers that have been published, uh, a lot of people use different definitions for what rainfall seasonality is. So what I'm also trying to do is to try and take all of those definitions and put them all into one place, and then also try and figure out what do you need to be able to measure those uh, seasonality in that way. Then also the application. Uh, so the measure of seasonality that you use depends on the application. So sometimes if you are looking at, for example, if you're looking at from a plant perspective, you find that uh, something like growth days is a better measure of seasonality because it takes into account the type of soil that the plant is found in. 
but then in other instances, when you're just looking at how the rainfall is distributed throughout the year, uh, that's different. Um, so those are the kinds of things that we're looking at. And then we have uh, two examples of how seasonality can affect community composition. So the first one is looking at how plants in Southern Africa, whether we have specific plants which are found in seasonal environments in Southern Africa or not. So that's the one objective. And then the other one is just to see if uh, mixed feeders, so herbivores, which uh, browse in the summertime. So those are mixed feeders, browses in, it browses in the winter and then it grazes in the summer to see if that their distribution is also comparable to some of these seasonality maps that we're producing. So that's my research in a nutshell. Thank you very much, Nto. Uh, sounds like very important work. Again, we also wish you all of the best as you round up your PhD. So we've got very diverse research interests here, and it's kind of set the tone um, of why we we've we've come together. You know, um, it's it's for Black History Month, and we want to amplify um, the voices of Black ecologists and showcase the amazing work that you're all doing. However, we all know, and I'm sure you do because you're all in this field, that there is a lack of uh, representation, particularly of people of color, Black people. Now, CP, for you, I'm sure this is a double um, wagon because not only are you Black, but you're also female. So um, can you just talk to us on some of your experiences on the lack of representation, being female as well as being a Black person? Um, for me, I would say I've been fortunate enough um, when, I draw, when I started my MC and joined um, my lab, it was a very, it's, it's a very diverse lab. So it's like well-balanced in terms of gender and race. So at no point did I feel like out of place. I think I got to realize when we go for like conferences, I remember in beginning of 2020, um, I attended an international conference and I happened to be one of three um, black students in the conference. So then that was like a, wow, like I didn't read like, even like in, in terms of like African representation, our lab, only the three of us from the lab were the only ones from Africa. So I guess that's when I only realized it's wow, there's actually a lack of representation and it's really bad. But on a day-to-day, -day, like at the lab, I really don't think that. That's so interesting that it seems like when you were here, it, you didn't notice any different but then when you kind of zoomed out and you went into a bigger setting that's when sort of the blinkers were off um does anybody want to add further on 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 this maybe uh daniel well what i can say is that there is a problem at the the institute where i work um is a graduate institute so the we can choose students who will do master and PhD. And the problem is that um, we don't get black students applying. Uh, that, the, that's the issue. So um, uh, two, years, two years ago, when, when the, the Black Lives Matter movement exploded, lots of people consulted with me and other people uh, in the university, we have to do something. Well, the point is that uh, students apparently in North America get discouraged in North America, meaning mainly the US and, and uh, 
the Canada, uh, get discouraged earlier. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't graduate with uh, the wish to, to become scientists. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, the bright and, and the bright student that also have a, a family background that enables them to, to, to be comfortable studying and stuff, uh, those uh, often study uh, medicine and um, law. And um, I've noticed that also when I was in South Africa, that the first student that, uh, that could go to university, they were pushed for the family, by the family to become, to, to, to study medicine and, and law, because, because this is uh, stuff that people who have not, uh, who are not lived in, in, in privileged background uh, identify as, mm -hmm. as successful career, whereas yeah. scientists, scientists they earn modest salary and they cannot necessarily look after a big family. And they, there is no little encouragement to go into the science. You have to mm -hmm. feel comfortable with, with your whole, your entire surrounding to do that. Um, that is, I think, uh, one major problem that we have. That we, we, that the universities are at, at graduate level, they, they are now in North America, at least are, are open to, to black students, but uh, there is no, there is, there is few of them that go to the gauntlet of uh, undergraduate studies for science. Um, yeah, I think you've touched on a very important topic. I'm told I'm going to bring you in here um, based on that. So Daniel said that it seems like the black students um, are not necessarily applying for programs, for example, in science, or let's say even more specifically um, in ecology. Um, do you think that's the case for, for you? You are here in South Africa. And also, what sort of pressure does that put on the people who are idols? Okay, so from my side, what I can say is um, the other reason why people don't apply for these is because they don't know much about it. So like Daniel touched on, uh, for most of us, we are probably the first generation to go to varsity. At least I was privileged enough that my parents actually went before me, so they had a bit more information. But for a lot of my peers, uh, they are the first generation to go to varsity. So it's a thing where they're also trying to figure out what's going on. Like those careers that have been mentioned, like law and accounting and law uh, or being a doctor, those are the most accessible careers because that's what you see on TV every day and you know that if you study that you're probably going to get a nice salary drive a nice car afterwards so that's why many people go towards that but then when it comes to science people don't even know the wide variety of careers that you can do in science not just ecology but there are many different parts of science that people can go into that people have no idea about. So that's another reason why a lot of people don't apply for that. And then also when you get into those careers as well, there's some sort of like systemic way where they try and where you just realize that you don't belong in this particular space. And that's something that we have to try and navigate. And only a few people can actually get through that, to say that challenge. And then only then will you be able to make it to being a scientist. 
so so true so so true and with that being said um we we know we 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 are able to recognize these problems we've all mentioned what the problems are so then how do we take action so that more people get into the sciences let's start off there and then how do we get more people to get into ecology um i'd like to pose this off to to you daniel in your years of experience what do you think can be more of the action plans and not necessarily, you know, just the words, which is, I think sometimes that's the problem. Uh, two things. I think that uh, global warming, um, which is gonna be with us quite a few decades and perhaps centuries, um, will, um, will emphasize the role of ecology in life um, because, we are going in many, many countries and to hang on by a thread um, uh, our survival because, because uh, agriculture is going to become difficult. Fisheries is going to be also difficult. So, so ecology will very much have to be at the center of our planning and life. Um, maybe I, I will give a, uh, uh, another point um, in within Europe there is uh, um, the the countries uh, have to uh, if they want to access a European research fund there has to be balance between the north and the south of Europe and similarly um, when after Africa uh, South Africa uh, had the vote to get rid of apartheid there was a big push to to create a collaboration between um, historically black college and, and institution and uh, the one that we're not. And uh, I was part of a small group of three people that reviewed uh, uh, Sanko project. I don't know if that still exists in South Africa, but it is uh, uh, it was a, a funding agency that evaluated project for the, for the um, balance between Black institutional, black college, and white college, and um, some of them had uh, made a real effort because it was just after apartheid was officially finished, uh, a real effort to involve people uh, in in a in a real sense. But most of them had not. They had just the just put a line uh, or th this college would be involved, but they hadn't thought about it. Uh, what it what it means and uh, um, one could uh, we went to 100 application about uh, for project and uh, they could easily be identified the one that that we're not serious about this collaboration so basically we will have ecology will will par force it, it is necessary to have more ecology in our lives simply because we are going to have big trouble with our natural systems in the next years and and this will force collaboration between all the institution that can uh, work together but this collaboration will have to be more than on paper they will have to be real and they are easily distinguished when when for example there is collaboration between two institutions but 90 percent of the fund go to one and not to the other you can tell that it is not real so uh, it is uh, actually, it is uh, via uh, distribution of fund, it is uh, actually possible to force, um, um, force uh, collaboration between 
between groups that were not uh, collaborating before. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. Um, so it seems like here we've spoken more on an institutional level. So I'd like to take this then to you, Nasipi, um, on a personal level. Um, we're still talking on the word of action, right? So for you in your, where you are in your career, um, what do you think would have been helpful for you in terms of getting into ecology, you know, um, on, a, on a more personal front as well? I think for me, what have been most, like the most important thing would have been knowledge. Um, I think a lot of us don't know the opportunities that are out there. We don't know like the options we have and the amount of careers and all the things that we can get into. And I think that remains to be like an issue. I always realize when I like demonstrate undergraduates and I like tell them what I'm currently doing, it's always like a shock to them. Like this is like, oh wow, you can study and get paid for it. Like this, <laughs> I guess like the most important thing would be knowledge. And I remember, I think pre-COVID, we used to do like lab, it was like a, a lab average um, commitments will go to like underprivileged schools to help them apply and just to like enlighten them on the opportunities that they have and you'd be so surprised that even high school teachers don't know like the options that the learners can get into they'd like ask what is ecology and it's just like my goodness you're teaching grade 12 biology and you don't know so I think knowledge more than anything is a major issue and people like myself who are already within the space, I think we should be more vocal and like try to share more information on that. That's absolutely correct. You're right. There's so many people who don't even know um, that these opportunities exist. And it's so important to have conversations like this as well, um, to inform people so that they are aware of the opportunities available. Um, Amtor, would you like to further add on to this maybe? Um. What I also like to add, I'm not going to say what has already been said, but I think another thing that could actually change, I can say two things. The one thing is making more funding available for students who also want to study, because I know a lot of people who may want to continue to do their master's and their PhD, but then because like I mentioned earlier that most of them are the first people to graduate in their families. So there's also the pressure of being able to provide and support their families. So then studying becomes a bit difficult if they're not able to get funding. So I know a lot of people who actually look after their families using the money they get through funding, through studying. So I guess that's one way which we can change and try and get more funding for more students. And then like the other thing, which I also think is important is uh, mentorship, because sometimes you may get into the field and everything may be in place, but then if there's no one there to push you, then that is also going to become a bit of a challenge. Like I use myself as an example that I had this great professor who was actually able to guide me to do the work that I was doing. But if I didn't meet him, I don't think I'd also be in this conversation right now. So I think having more role models that uh, students can look up to as well, I think that's something which we need to try to be more visible so that at least those students can know about these careers and also have at least a reference point and someone who can help them through so that they don't have to face the same kinds of challenges that we have faced uh, through this journey. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mentorship is so important. And just having that support 
um, from somebody who's further ahead of you um, when you're up and coming. Um, and I think even with like how you mentioned about having a great supervisor, your late supervisor, um, who played very a very huge um, role in your career. And I'm sure with that, it also allowed you to, to, like you spoke about the opportunities that you had, and some of them are these international collaborations, which I'm sure all of you have all been part of in your various work experiences. So I'm gonna throw this back to you, Tor. I just would like us to, you, you, you also spoke about your review, about how you've worked with various different people, for example. So how has that um, been for you? Um, working with international collaborators, speaking on the positives and also maybe uh, the negatives that it has been for your career. All right. Uh, so working with international collaborators has been a very interesting journey because uh, at first you don't know who they are. So obviously you need someone who's be able to introduce you to them. So I can say maybe that could be the first negative that you don't, they're not as accessible as you think they are. And then uh, you can only work with them if they know the person that you're working with, which is a bit of a challenge because not everyone is going to have a supervisor that is well known or not everyone is going to be able to get into those spaces. So I think that's the biggest challenge of working with international collaborators. And then as well, uh, let me just speak about the challenges first. Uh, and then the other challenge as well is that sometimes they don't think that we know anything uh, on our side. They think we just rely on them 100% to get the expertise, not knowing that when you are in a collaboration and you're sharing information, you're helping each other. And sometimes it becomes a bit one-sided from their side where they think they're more of the authority figure on a particular topic, not understanding that we also have knowledge on that topic. Uh, but then on the other side as well, you get some really great collaborators who are actually able to help who also open up their networks uh, and they also bring in funding. Like, I feel like funding has been a huge theme which I've been speaking about, but working with these international bodies, they've got access to more money than any of our institutions here in Africa could have access to, which really helps a lot to get some of these international projects going. And then also they just provide a different viewpoint from what you're used to, because I think maybe our view of the world is very limited to our experiences, but uh, working with these other people from different backgrounds as well uh, opens you up to many other different experiences which you wouldn't uh, normally uh, work with. And then, like I said, uh, the access to networks. So if you meet international collaborators, the fact that you've worked with that person can also help you to work with someone else you may want to work with who you would not have met if you were not part of maybe a big international project. So I guess hey, that's been my experience with uh, international collaborations. Mm, thank you so much, Mtor. Thank you so much. Um, now, I'd like to bring you in, Daniel. Uh, given these challenges and barriers that you know, Mtor is speaking about, he's still at the beginning of his career and you are obviously well-versed and you've been in this field for a long time. So um, how how did you overcome any of these challenges that you might have faced and just sort of like some advice from somebody who's walked this path um you know yeah. for <laughs> for somebody listening they there is no nut you can you cannot crack if you just keep beating on it so the point is that it sounds trite, but uh, you have to work and to work on the same topic for a while 
Um, mm. People, old folks will often tell you, you have to change from time to time because you become, you become stale if you work on the same thing. But uh, if you have, if I have to give advice to young people, you have to stay at, at a certain, uh, at a certain, with a certain problem and published a, a number of papers before you move on. Because if you go from one problem to the other uh, very early, you, you will not be recognized by anybody as an expert in, in anything. Uh, so you, you choose a nice problem and then you bang on it for, for 10 years or so and published, uh, publish a dozen papers on it. Then you become an expert or in something and then you can move on to something else together with, with your acquired knowledge, your network and everything. That's, that's, that's what I, I would advise to, to bang on a problem. And they, there is, one can statistically demonstrate a, a discrimination against certain names, non-European non names. In, 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 in publication, but you cannot demonstrate it individually. I, for example, I had a, a student with a long uh, Arabic name and uh, we got rejected three or four times um, uh, with, a, with a paper that was excellent and that, was, that ended up in a very good journal. But I cannot tell whether this is because of the name or because, because of whatever. So the point is you cannot, you cannot um, give up too early, and uh, even though statistical difference can be demonstrated between uh, people with, say, names African names and names uh, European names, um, that that can be demonstrated statistically. But at individual level, you cannot tell. And and uh, you you we can take the example of Chinese uh, publication uh, a long time. Uh, China was viewed as um, duplicative science, uh, imitative science. They are now leading the several fields in, in science, for example, paleontology or computer science and stuff. They are totally leading the field. And, and so uh, there is no reason why African scientists should not become leading in, in 20 years in certain, in certain areas uh, of ecology because the field is there. Is, is the animals are there, the plants are there. Uh, the point is that you have to stick to it and you have to, to crack these nuts uh, by banging on it repeatedly until they are open, until they crack. Nasipi, this question is for you. Daniel spoke about how, you know, in order to establish yourself, you have to, you know, stick to... To, to your research and publish and, you know, create a name for yourself. And you are in the beginning. And obviously we already know that it's, it's going to take a while. And sometimes it gets really, really difficult to be motivated and continue to stick through your research problem. So with that being said, how do you keep that momentum? How have you you know, you've been doing this it's almost close to 10 years in your PhD. So how do you keep going and how do you keep motivated so that you can uh, become an expert in your field and, you know, touching on all those things that Daniel spoke about? For me personally, um, now, currently, like, if I feel like exhausted or if I feel like I'm not productive, I take time off. Like, I really do. And then I come back. 
rejuvenated and ready to work on whatever I'm working with. So I really encourage like taking breaks. And I'm really fortunate to be in such like a supportive space and having like a lot of peers, like we're in like different stages. So they do share that it's normal to like sometimes feel like out of place, even if you're progressive from time to time, you just feel like you're not doing anything. As like Daniel was saying, that you just need to keep at it. And I've been just trying to keep motivated, especially now that I'm writing out. It's it's a lot, but I'm pushing through it. Mm, definitely. And I'm sure the end of anything, particularly a PhD, <laughs> is so hard. Mimto, um, you're also in that space. You're also finishing up your PhD. So how do you stay motivated so that, you know, we we joke on a personal level. I know you're on a personal level that, you know, you're going to become a professor. Um, so obviously that's going to require a lot of work. And, you know, um, how do you keep motivated? Um, for me, I think... Uh... Besides like having a very supportive lab, uh, the people that I have in my lab are really, really supportive. They make sure that they celebrate every little win, even if you just make you type a sentence or you make one graph, they'll celebrate that because uh, that's so celebrating those small little wins, I think for me is another thing that keeps you motivated because sometimes you become so discouraged when you look at this big task that's ahead of you. But then if you see yourself that you can do one little thing, then that in itself makes you feel so much better. And then also, uh, I think another thing that keeps me going is seeing people also of my age uh, who are also doing well. I can say I'm very grateful for social media because it has also opened up a whole new world of like also other young academics who are also going through the same challenges that you're facing. Then you realize that you're not the only one who's dealing with that and that there are other people who are also out there who are also uh, supporting you in everything that you do as well. Uh, because when you, for example, you post about whatever achievement that you have, you have all these people that are also cheering for you, who you may not know on a personal level, but that also helps you to be able to do your work as well. So I think that's another thing that keeps me motivated. Mm. Support is so important, whether it is in your lab or just, you know, on social media. Um, and I love that. We've had such a great conversation today. Um, and I've loved how you've all sh shared your very unique journeys. And it's been quite interesting to learn about all of your research interests and just some of the things that are common to all of you, but also the unique difference, the unique differences um, in some of the struggles. So as we wrap up, um, I'd love to hear some advice with somebody who is listening. What advice would you like to impart on them? Or as I always say, um, you know, golden nuggets. Daniel, would you care to uh, start for us? Golden. I think uh, you, the audience, I think we will have to learn that scientists are not nerds that uh, do weird things, that uh, weird thing that... Uh, that are irrelevant to our lives, but rather that um, um, that they are doing things that are that has to be that have to be considered. Less we don't want civilization as we know it to end, because because we are in a process of messing up with the Earth um, ecosystems to the extent that life on Earth will become difficult, and the only way to fix that is to listen to the science about 
about how we can make things work again. And if we don't do that, we will be in a mess. So scientists are uh, to be listened to and therefore have to be promoted. And we need all the science that we can get. That means all genders and people of all ethnicity have to be able to contribute because we need as much brain as we, as we, as we can to devote to overcoming these problems. Mm, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Nasipi, your words of wisdom. Um, for me, I'd say um, I think what we do is very important, not just for us, but for society. So I'd say like anyone who's interested in like, pursuing post-grad studies, I'll say just if you can choose a supportive supervisor, choose a supportive supervisor, look out for funding opportunities. There's so many like opportunities for like travel and attending conferences nice um Mto, your last words first please um what i can say is that uh keep asking questions uh because if you keep asking questions then you would want to find out the answers so i think the advice i can give or my final closing words is that we should keep asking questions and uh, that applies to, I guess, all aspects of life, but specifically in science, because asking those questions will help us to be able to understand our world better. And it will also help us to be able to solve some of the problems that we face. Uh, and then also another thing which I can say is um, going back to the support system, uh, like find someone who can support you. And there are so many people that are willing to support. Uh, you just have to look in the right places. Lovely. Wow. So many golden nuggets, words of wisdom and amazing last words. And I'm sure for the audience who are listening, they are inspired, they're motivated, and they've learned something. And thank you so much, each and every one of you for taking the time to chat with us today on this amazing episode, this collaboration. And we we want to say that this is hopefully not the end, but the start of many more conversations um, like this, because it's very, very, very important. I know personally, I've learned something um, and I look forward to keep on, keeping on learning from many people um, in this field.